Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire production. production. You look all cozy with your cup of coffee. Good morning. Morning. Love more. How come you're... Um, Love more for sure. How come your uh, screen says Zoom user now instead of Bliss? <laughs> I don't know. I went to Bali and took took everything. I don't know. I have no idea. So now you are a goddess Zoom user? <laughs> I'll figure it out someday. Watch. Watch. We'll start getting emails to goddess Zoom user. All right. So today is March 15th. Not for I'm, our listeners, I'm, but for you and me. I'm distracted by your t-shirt. What does it say? Where'd that one come from? Oh, indie birth. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah, I'm on an indie birth support message. Uh, kick. Kick. <laughs> Thank you. This is so great. I'm so glad you're going to be filling my words for me. Okay. <laughs> we do love them. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, sometimes we don't sleep as well as we want to. So, um, mm-hmm. so today is a big day, but it's already two it weeks is. from now by the time everybody is listening, but it's March 15th. Which one is my stepson's 34th birthday. So okay. Max, a happy birthday. Happy birthday, Max. Yep. Give us some grandchildren pretty soon, would you? <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then it's also the Ides of March. Silence. I, I thought you were going to play music or something. <laughs> no, no, I don't know. There is a theme song. I don't think there's a theme song for the Ides of March because the Ides of March is actually about not heeding warnings. Um, it was made famous. I did a little research because I really heard the term a million times and I really didn't know where it came yeah. from. Yeah. But it comes from, was made famous by William Shakespeare in the play Julius Caesar, where Julius Caesar does not heed the warnings of one of his advisors. And later that day, on this date, he gets stabbed to death by his co-workers. <laughs> <laughs> not something where some of us aren't familiar with currently. Yeah. Well, you know, the medical board and stuff like that. They yeah. They figuratively are stabbing people to death. We got I got a story about that somewhere in today's letter batch. But it's also the new supposedly the new moon on any given month, but it's but since it's always now on March 15th, it isn't always exactly that. But anyway, that's kind of a cool thing. Uh anything going for you? Now, I know we talked you recently, know- but What's going on? It's funny. I I woke up in bed this morning and I was like, okay, I got to get up and get ready for the podcast. What am I going to talk about for my update? And I was like, I haven't done shit since I've gotten back from Bali. I caught up with clients, which is really nice. And, but it's been, it's been very relaxing, just kind of getting back into the groove of like, you know, it's just different being on vacation in a place like Bali and being here and working. So it's kind of like switching gears and integrating everything from my travels, you know? Um, and the other thing I was thinking about is like the deep emotional work that we do with our clients as midwives, you know? I had a couple of sessions this week, one with a family who's about to deliver, who has a deep history of addiction, you know, goes way back and is, is current and, you know, really talking openly about like, what does that mean for this mom? And how is she feeling about 
the past and, you know, how is she feeling about now and what we need to do to show up for her. And it was a really beautiful home visit. And the doula actually led us in prayer and it was just really beautiful. And the other one was a mom who actually like most of her visits when I like am looking at the fact that she's coming in, she doesn't really have a lot of questions. She had an easy vaginal birth in the hospital last time. She's planning a home birth this time. And her her visits are usually pretty short because she just isn't really, you know, effusive and doesn't really open up that much. And she came in the other day and she's getting closer. She's in her third trimester and she just started crying and she had a really hard postpartum last time. She actually was depressed for about a year and a half. And so she's really like preparing and thinking about like, what could she do to do it, you know, to have a different experience this time. And it was just really beautiful to like know that she feels safe enough with me at this point in her pregnancy to really open up and talk about that. And, you know, as midwives, we do this really deep dive with people. And Elizabeth Davis is the one who wrote Heart and Hands. She's one of my mentors. I, you know, at the beginning of my training, I went to San Francisco and studied with her. And she says, you know, the way to have a more straightforward birth experience is to get a lot of this handled in our prenatal visits. And so I really always feel a little relieved when I have a mom who opens up like that. And I feel like we can really do a deep dive together before she's actually in labor. So those were the things that I was thinking about this morning and births are coming. I have a couple of births coming up soon and I'm super excited. Well, I have a couple, I have a couple comments for you. One is yeah. it's actually so healthy to be Pleasantly unproductive and <laughs> yeah. uh, being sociable. We don't do it enough. We always think we need to be doing something. So sometimes True. it's hard True. to unwind and it takes a trip to Bali for a month and then coming back and adjusting. And it's perfectly healthy and normal and probably best for all of us to do that. To, you know, that's sort of in the Jewish tradition why we had the Shabbat. It was to take one day a week where we didn't do anything, couldn't drive, couldn't turn on that. the TV, couldn't. You know, we family, we cooked. That's what we, you know, for I, my family was not, they didn't keep kosher or anything like that. But we, we would go to services, especially when I was young and getting preparing for my bar mitzvah, um, that sort of thing. And it's, you know, that sort of tradition has been lost. People are constantly on the move right now. Yeah. The second thing I would tell you is that recently this past week, which will be coming out shortly too, I did an interview with Alicia um, for her program. Uh, she's going to be interviewing 12 atypical OBs. <laughs> Ooh. And she's going to be putting that out at the end of March. And and also I did an interview with my friend Hayuda Cohen, who is currently in Israel, for a series that she's doing for some of the doctors of Israel. And one of the things we talked about, of course, was the models of care and the differences in it. And when you were telling your story about how the first person needed all this stuff and you had this prayer thing and this, this, you know, you did all these things in the office and stuff like that. Can you imagine? Oh, and the second one broke down and needed to cry because of their postpartum depression. Can you imagine in the corporate medical world right now that that person would get any sort of care similar to that in her six or eight minute prenatal visit with her doctor? There would be no room for any of that. Yeah. And so the, these women who have you and all our listeners, whether they're uh, pregnant women or whether they're, you know, caregivers, we are very lucky to be practicing, even in a time where we are stabbed in the back sometimes, to be practicing where we have the ability to help people and have such great job satisfaction doing it. Absolutely. So a couple other things. Um, 
total total change of mood. I had a Bill Gates moment this morning, and not why not what you're thinking. <laughs> hope any, hope nobody's thinking that. By the way, you know how your computer sometimes when you go to bed at night will, will like upgrade itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that pisses me off. Because you come back and often the windows that you had open prepping for things and stuff like that, they've all shut down and they've reopened. And now I can't even get my own website to come up uh, all because something I didn't ask for happened while I was asleep. To my computer. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and I believe when things like that happen, when you don't ask for them, there's rarely is it for you know, saintly reasons. It's almost always something nefarious. They're always put something, putting something in your computer, which they tell you is going to make your life easier, but it's just a way to track you and get more data from you so that they can make more money off of you or control your life more or that sort of thing. That's just from experience. And I I don't think that I'm wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I think sometimes they're trying to fix the bugs that people report that are not working well. But I'm glad one of us is optimistic. I try to be. I try to be. <laughs> All right. So we're going to get later to our topic today, which is molar pregnancies and and some other unusual, not so normal pregnancies. Yeah. Well, what we call gestational trophoblastic trophoblastic disease, mm-hmm. and which <laughs> I sent <laughs> I sent Liz a bunch of acronyms yesterday or abbreviations. Know what they all were? It was pretty funny. <laughs> so. Yeah, we'll get to that. First of all, I think in a recent podcast, it might have been my solo one or one where we were on together, I said that I wanted to start getting people to write in to let me know of breach or twin practitioners in their area who are who they trust, who I can refer to. So I can start I'm gonna get a giant map of the US and I'm gonna start putting little pins in it um, so that I people can write me and say, you know somebody in Cleveland and stuff, and I'm going to say, well, let me look. Oh, yeah, there's a pin not too far from Cleveland, and I can give you that name. So I just Great. want to give a shout out to our first responder, which was Jennifer. Um, and she says, hello, Dr. Stu. We have two practitioners in my area, Mississippi and Alabama Gulf Coast, whose birth, who birth breech babies and twins vaginally. One is a practitioner in a hospital. His name's Dr. William Perez. And the other is a community birth option with a... Colleen Tullis. So I'm going to not expect anybody else to keep track of this stuff, but I am going to keep track of this stuff. So awesome. Uh, thank you, Jennifer. You're, you're just the man to do it. Yeah, yeah. I need more projects. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. We're supposed to be writing a book. Oh, God. Yeah, well, tell Rick Safreeze that because Rick Safreeze has to help me finish my pace. I'm about to send her a letter. Yeah, tell her to get, she's not, I mean, I'd like to say tell her to get off her butt, but Rixa is never on her butt either. No. She's yeah. very thorough. I know. I know. Rick needs to take a month in Bali and do nothing except work on our paper. That's what she Because <laughs> <laughs> I've really done all my part, all that I can do. The, what's really left is the bringing in the historical things, the references, and then mm-hmm. and then the statistical analysis, which is whoop, way over my head. So that's next. Okay. okay. Um, speaking of breach providers and practitioners, there's this one quick story before we get to some letters that I got. And this is from Sussex, England, and it was just a, it was a sad story. And the title is Burgess Hill Family Campaigns to Prevent Breach Home Birth Death, Deaths. Excuse me. So from that title, what would you imagine it, the story's about? Death of a baby. <laughs> Who was breach, right? 
brilliant. Yes. That's why you're so good at what you do. That's exactly right. All right. The problem is, is that this was a surprise, unassisted breech birth. Mm-hmm. Wasn't a midwife who didn't know what they were doing, but you would never know that from the title. Right. And we talked previously many times about how people often will read title or paragraph one and never read any details yes. into a paper. Yes. Um, the first paragraph, a couple whose baby died after he was starved of oxygen during a home birth are campaigning for risky breach deliveries to be spotted earlier. Okay. So again, if you read that sentence, you think, oh my God, home birth breach, awful. Right. As though that Mrs. that this woman, I'll leave her name out. She's 33 years old. She went into labor at 3 a.m. on the 24th of May of 2021. I don't know why this story is coming out now is always one of those questions you need to ask yourself. Why does this story come out two years later? But when she was 37 weeks pregnant, and it's important to remember the 37-week thing. About two hours later, it was recognized that the baby was unanticipated footling breach. Okay. Once again, most likely that's incorrect. Using proper nomenclature, that baby was probably complete breach when the feet feet dropped out. But it gives a bad rap to term breaches who are complete when the foot drops out because people consistently call them footling breach. Right. Okay. Then I highlighted, it says, Arthur's parents believe a breakdown in communication between the paramedics who attended and their control center um, meant that she was kept at home for too long. Nowhere in this story does it say that there was a skilled practitioner involved in this care. This was a, these were people that were having a birth at home. I don't know if it was planned to be at home unassisted, what you call a wild birth, or whether it was planned to be going to the hospital once they were in labor and things happened very quickly. But this was not an error of a home birth midwife, contrary to what you might get when you read that first paragraph that I read, right? Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Arthur's father said, you could hear the panic and confusion in everyone's voices. One minute they were told to go to the hospital, the next minute they were told to stay. So here's, the, here's what they said. As a result of the baby's death, all planned home birth in Sussex are being offered a, present, a presentation scan at 38 weeks. Mm-hmm. How, long, how far along was this lady? 37. 37. Wouldn't, wouldn't have made a difference. Wouldn't have made a difference. Yeah. yeah. So the question is, are, are these happening so frequently that this makes sense? Or is this just like putting a bandage on a spurting artery? And it's not going to make any difference. Why are, they, why are they doing it this way? And they're offering a presentation scan. I think people had the offer to have a presentation scan anyway. So I'm not sure. Maybe it wasn't covered by the National Health Service. So maybe now it will be. Right. But they also say, I've, I found out since, since found out that I had all the telltale signs of footling breach, such as feeling kicks in my lower stomach and hard swelling below my ribs. But I didn't know what they were. So again, there's no experts involved in this. There's no practitioners involved in this. Like calling footling breach, probably incorrectly. You can have movement, even with a frank breach or a complete breach, you can feel movement down in the lower part of your belly. Even with a head down baby, you can feel movement down in the lower part of your belly if they got a hand there or something like that. doesn't mean anything. They want to, they, they want to treat it by doing an ultrasound a week after this would have happened anyway. So it's just, but yet the headline comes into my feed because I have searches going on. Yeah. world literature. And if you yeah. just somebody just read the headline and just read the first paragraph, they would think that this was a botched home breach birth. Yeah. And the thing that sticks out to me, and I think I've mentioned it on the podcast, the demises that I have heard of, of, you know, midwife associates in the recent past, in the last, I'd say 18 months, 
it almost always has to do with the transfer of care from them to the EMTs. So even though there wasn't a midwife present, what I heard in what you read was that the EMTs were not prepared, were not skilled, were not trained. And if they kept them home too long, which I did hear with another birth center, you know, that to me is where the real issue is and not necessarily having to do with anything other than that. Yeah. This is why I love you so much, because that was going to be my final point was I was talking Mm -hmm. about getting my map up of people who can do breach delivery and train breach delivery. And once again, you had the same sort of story that you might have had from the Nebraska birthkeeper trial where paramedics show up and have no clue what to do. Yeah. God, I would just how hard would it be to give paramedics training? Right. In what to do? Not. Not. Not hard. Yeah. Not hard. Right. Yeah. So good pickup, Bliss. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, all right. Well, if you've got nothing on your plate right now, I've got I've got an interesting letter from uh, Charity regarding irregular cycles, dating, and proge- use of progesterone. So let's see what you think about. Okay. Them. Great. Okay. Okay. Hello, Doctor Stu and Midwife Bliss. <laughs> okay. I've been listening to you about a year now. I really enjoy the knowledge you share. I have three questions for you. First. Is there any way to tell how far along you are in a pregnancy when you have irregular periods without getting an ultrasound? What do you think? Um, well, it depends on where you're talking about. So eventually, yes, because midwives tracked pregnancies without ultrasounds for a long time. So once you get to about 20 weeks, you should be able to really, you can palpate the fundus before that, maybe like 16 or something. Um, and so you should be able to to track and measure the pregnancy that way. But in early pregnancy, before you're growing, it's a little bit more difficult with irregular periods. It is. It is. It's difficult to try. It depends how irregular they are. If they're if they're like months apart, yeah, then you and you have long periods of oligomenorrhea where you don't have any periods, then you may miss the first month or so before you start to develop symptoms. There is a skill that isn't really taught much anymore because we avoid pelvic exams, but doing an early pelvic exam, they do teach us the size of a normal uterus, a six-week uterus, an eight-week uterus, a 10-week uterus, and you can actually feel that. And the only time you could be fooled generally is if they have fibroids or if they have twins or something like that. But otherwise, yeah. that's, you know, that's fairly accurate as well. I mean, you don't know when you were and you come in and the doctor didn't have an ultrasound machine or the midwife didn't did a pelvic exam and felt like it was an eight-week size uterus. That's ballparking it pretty good. At some point, though, because of all the crazy craziness that goes on toward term, getting an ultrasound so you know approximately when your due date is makes some sense. And the earlier you get an ultrasound, the more accurate the ultrasound is for dating. But of course, we also want to avoid ultrasound as much as we can, in the, at least in the first trimester. So you have competing issues. Well, I always like, you know, think, who cares when your due date is, really? Well, Let's talk about that for a second. Well, I mean, if we didn't have the stupid constraints <laughs> and liabilities and all of that stuff that we worry about, which isn't really, uh, you know, if we look at just nature, what we should be worrying about is you have your baby when you have your baby and you don't, that's, this is what we used to do. We just took good care of ourselves and our belly continued to grow and we didn't think about our due dates. We just went about our lives. And then one day we went into labor, you know? So, but 
we don't live that way anymore. But what is yeah, really I mean, what we, is really the importance of knowing your due date besides stressing you out and making people get involved in your pregnancy when they should keep their mind their own business? Well, how are you going to know when to give them their late second trimester vaccines if you don't know when to late <laughs> second trimester? And know when to order your birth kit. <laughs> <laughs> These important issues, right? I know, right? Right. How do you know when to start NSTs? Unnecessarily, when you don't know when they're one minute over 40 weeks. Sure. Absolutely. So, yeah. Anyway, well, that's it. You know, it really is a good thought because if somebody's in preterm labor, you can often tell that just by the size of their belly. I mean, mm -hmm. clearly, we don't live in that world anymore. I mean, not in the United States anyway. Maybe in Haiti, maybe in, in at Bumi Sihat, they, they may very well live in that world. Yeah. A, lot, a lot of people, and a lot of women get pregnant. While they still have nursing their first baby, they haven't had a period in a year and a half. So right. that happens too. So how do yeah. they know? And they don't have access to ultrasound in large portions of the world. So, right. okay. Second question. Well, actually more story. My last period was September. I, at the time, take pregnancy tests when it's been so long. I took one in January and it was negative. Then last week, March 9th, I took one and got a light positive on a cheap dollar test. I like it light positive. <laughs> that's like kind of pregnant. <laughs> yeah, that's like horseshoes anyways, and grenades, right? Yeah. Anyways, keep going. Yeah, okay. Uh, by the way, the cheap dollar tests these days are pretty accurate. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that evening, I I got a good line on the first responders early test. Is that a brand first responders? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. My thoughts is I might be about two weeks at the time of the tests, but not for sure. My last pregnancy, they had to do an ultrasound to find out. This time, I don't know if I want to do an early ultrasound or not. Just wanting to know all my options, if there are any. So we just discussed them. Yeah. yeah. You just continue to be pregnant. And eventually, you'll be able to put the pieces together of when you felt fetal movement and how big your belly is and all of that to be able to um, figure out where you are in your gestation. If that's the direction you want to go. And you, want to you need to it. find you need to find a practitioner who's going to support you in that. Because if you go to a regular OB, they're, they're going to like be pushing you toward doing those sorts of things because it makes them more comfortable. And I understand yeah. that. I mean, I, I always am sort of more comfortable myself knowing dates just because I think that's part of the hamster wheel that I haven't been able to get out of yet, even after all these years. Is Well, you know, it's interesting. It's like more comfortable. Yeah. I mean, there are things that people choose that, you know, I'm like, oh, that would make me more comfortable to have that information. But when it happens, I get pushed up against my philosophies of like, this is an opportunity for me to be able to stretch. And if you're really paying attention and you're really willing to like be the beginner mind, you learn things. And that's not such a bad thing either. No. Sometimes having to be made to let go of these proverbial rocks in the middle of the stream and see what comes up around the bend is actually the, some of the best things that can ever happen to you. Yeah. You know, sometimes not, but yeah, but sometimes it is. Okay. So based on that, Charity can decide whatever she wants to do. Second question was, what are your thoughts on using progesterone to prevent miscarriage? I was put on it last time due to my polycystic ovarian syndrome and past test of low progesterone. What's your take on that? Well, you and I have talked about this many times. So, you know, my take is from, from what we've discussed, which is it's like an insurance policy. So we don't know for sure definitively whether or not it would stop miscarriage, but there's not a lot of downsides to taking it. So um, if it's something that would make you feel more comfortable, then uh, 
then you can do that. I agree that right now it doesn't seem like promicronized natural progesterone is there's a downside to it. And, and I'm hoping that we don't find out 20 years from now that there was. But being yeah. me, I took a little bit of a deeper dive and I went to the Cochrane reviews on this to find out what the latest stuff yeah. is. Mm-hmm. And they do find that progesterones reduce the risk of miscarriage when compared to placebo in patients with threatened miscarriage and also in patients with a history of one or two previous miscarriages. Mm-hmm. Using it prophylactically, there's no data on that. So the, fa- the time that they gave it to her in her first one because her blood progesterone was low, they're chasing a number, but the data doesn't support that it's going to do any good. And my always feeling is if a, if a Pregnancy is going to miscarry. Yeah. Usually it's because nature decided there's something wrong with it. Yeah. And so giving an artificial outside medication to try to save something that might not have been nature wanting to save in the first place, you know, you have to think about that in those terms. There is some data, according to this, that it does show that it does help if you've had one or two miscarriages. Number needed to treat is, is 10, which means you have to treat 10 women with that group of symptoms or history to prevent one miscarriage. So that's a very small number to, number needed to treat, makes it a reasonable choice to do since we don't know that there's any downside to it. Yeah. Things, like, things like bed rest, pelvic rest, vitamins, uterine relaxants, and administration of HCG injections, which is something we used to do, by the way, mm-hmm. are not recommended. They don't do any good. Yeah, um, but you still hear that all the time. Yeah, well, you'll hear it's some of those same things. same kind of thing, I think. I think especially like the pelvic rest, it's like, it doesn't hurt you know, necessarily. So if you're really invested in this pregnancy, it's, it's easy for us to be like, yeah, you know, nature is just taking its course, but when you really want a baby and you've suffered a couple of losses already, I understand like really wanting to try as much as you can, but I feel very similarly to used to about giving something to somebody who seems like they're about to miscarry because we have all these herb concoctions and stuff. And I think the same thing I'm like, but wait a minute, if someone's already about to, you know, lose a pregnancy, these herbs are not going to necessarily stop this natural progression of a baby that is probably has like an anomaly or something. So um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. And you know what? I think I missed, I think I um, might've mixed up my progesterone with my aspirin thing when I said it for people with a history of previous miscarriages. This is really basically only for people with threatening a miscarriage now, right? Produce a progesterone. Got it. Okay. The last part of her question Someone told me to take baby aspirin to prevent miscarriage. This is the first I've ever heard of it being used to prevent miscarriage. I know many say to prevent blood clots and so on, but I don't recall hearing anything about early miscarriage. That's her last question. So mm-hmm. I looked into that as well, just because I, I want to be sure that what we're saying is accurate. It was pretty much what we've said before. This is the one where low-dose aspirin seems to have benefit if you have a history of one or two previous miscarriages. And it needs to be done starting early or actually preconception. You need to start it. So if you've had a miscarriage or a second miscarriage and you're thinking about trying to get pregnant again, going on a baby aspirin every day seems to be something that has far more benefit than than any significant risk. And they looked at 1,000 women between the ages of 18 and 40 with one or two previous miscarriages. The woman received either daily low-dose aspirin or a placebo while trying to conceive. If they did conceive, they would continue to receive whatever regimen they were on through the 36th week of pregnancy. Mm. Okay. There was a higher birth rate for the subgroup of women who had experienced only one previous miscarriage before the 20th pregnancy. So 20th week of pregnancy. So um, it seemed to work best in women with one previous miscarriage. 
not women with two or more previous miscarriages. There might be something else going on with those women. I'm not. They don't I'm a really... little dubious. I'm a little dubious of that data. This is exactly what we were talking about last week when you start to use your own common sense when you're reading these studies. So it's like it was more effective with people who had one miscarriage. So probably those people were going to get pregnant and have babies anyways, because they don't have some real issue going on with their ability to hold a pregnancy. Whereas someone who's had multiple probably has more going on and they would have had issues anyway. So that's what, that's what goes off in my head when I hear that. For somebody sitting there in daylight with a cup of coffee, you are exceptionally brilliant today. Why, thank you. Yeah, what's in that coffee? What are you drinking? <laughs> uh, the, they also analyzed whether people were compliant with the regimen. And they said that if people take baby aspirin at least four days out of the week, not quite, they don't expect people to stick on it every all seven days, although most women will do that. Yeah, yes. Uh, that improves your odds. So do you actually take the dosage? It. Well, it's just one low dose baby aspirin. Right, but I mean, anyway, sorry. I, you know, I'm just, I'm just saying that, that for somebody that's never had a miscarriage or anything like that to take progesterone or aspirin, there's no, it probably doesn't make any sense to do that. Yeah. What we, as you said earlier, is there a significant harm that we know of from progesterone and aspirin? No, but we're messing with mother nature and you know how birthing instincts podcast feels about messing with mother nature. Right. Yeah. And, and going to 36 weeks with the regimen is interesting too. I would have thought just through the first trimester, but. Right? Uh, yeah, it doesn't only, they're only worried about inflammation in the lining or whatever else causing a miscarriage. Then why, once the, once it's taken in your six, eight, 16, 18 weeks, why are you continuing? What's, yeah. Then yeah. there's like, so you're right. The whole thing is sort of cauldron. It's, it's medical cauldron stuff is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Moving on. <laughs> okay. And you know what time it is? It's time to hear from one of our sponsors. Great. So we'll be right back. One of our great sponsors is Element. That's L-M-N-T. It's a tasty electrolyte drink with everything you need and nothing you don't. As Bliss likes to say, none of the BS. It's got uh, lots of salt, no sugar. It's formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs. And it's perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb, or paleo diet. But as we always say, it's great for laboring moms. It's great for birth workers. It's great for birth workers who happen to be in the tropics. Uh, I'm planning to take uh, my element with me to my trip in Haiti, where it's going to be hot and sweaty every day. And I'm going to be using that. It's easy to pack. It comes in these small little packets, which make the weight and uh, packing it in your little tiny backpack suitcase. Pretty easy thing to do. Comes in multiple flavors. My favorite, of course, is the raspberry salt, but it comes in grapefruit salt, watermelon salt, citrus salt, orange salt, raw unflavored mango chili, lemon habanero, and chocolate salt. It's got, again, no processed foods in it. It's really healthy for you. A lot of athletes, professional athletes use it. You might have seen some of their commercials on Instagram. We support them because they support us. And if you go to Drink Element, that's drinklmnt.com, and use the code word birthing instincts or backslash birthing instincts, you will get a free sample pack with every order. That's drinkelement.com backslash birthing instincts for a free sample pack with every order. Thanks very much. Thanks, Element. Okay, we're back. Okay, we're back. Just in time to be here about harassment. <laughs> <laughs> we're having fun today in, in an odd sort of way. Okay. <laughs> 
Hi, Dr. Stu and Just Bliss. And Just Bliss. <laughs> no, it doesn't say, it doesn't say, it just says, hi, Dr. Stu and Bliss. That's funny. But then what about okay. You two are the absolute best. Thank you for always making time and coordinating so that we can hear your wisdom, stories, and life travels from around the world. I'm 26 weeks into my second pregnancy and planning my second home birth. My midwife recently confided in me that as a, as a friend that she is under state inspection for three cases that were filed against her. Wow. They claim she is taking clients who are, quote, unfit for home birth, unquote. Mm -hmm. the, and by the way, they, who's they? They is the highly paid medical shill that acts as an expert reviewing these cases and deciding which ones go forward and which ones don't. That's right. the they we talked about last week, I think. These three cases were transports and worked with a new female OB at our local hospital. So there is the antagonist right there. Yeah. <laughs> My midwife used to have a decent relationship with the OB staff, but the senior OB just retired and, re and was replaced with this piece of work. <laughs> Who told her she is not allowed in the hospital during transfers of her clients and I'm sure is the reason for this whole mess. Yeah. Right. So, of course... What's the best interest of the woman in labor is not important to this piece of work because wouldn't it be important to have continuity of care, get report face to face, maybe have a friendly face that the woman knows involved in her care at the hospital, at least as a support person. But no, you're not allowed in. So here's the three cases. One case, the woman was hemorrhaging at 26 weeks and she was and the midwife told her to call 911 and go to the hospital now. From there, she's been under hospital care. One case was a woman who broke her water at 22 weeks, and she told her to call 911 and go to the hospital now. The woman had her surgery, had heart surgery as a child, but had been seeing her cardiologist her whole life. But they are using the fact that she had heart surgery as a reason she was unfit to birth at home, even though she was only 22 weeks at the time. So they're saying, well, you took her on as a client, even though she'd been healthy for 20 years. Yeah. And what, is, what does a heart condition have to do with preterm labor? Or just, or just even labor if her, she has clearance from her cardiologist. Totally, 100%. Yeah. The last case was a breech birth, and her and her another home birth midwife ended up catching the baby in the hospital parking lot and almost lost the baby after that, but they were able to get quick care and everyone is doing well. My midwife is the most kind and sweet soul, and we live in a very rural area with a lot of Amish. The women here need her and her care, at, and her care as our hospital is horrendous. She said she is, healthy, is happy to be joining the list of midwives who have had to fight for women's choice and autonomy, but she's so stressed out. Do you have any resources or wisdom? The state is Michigan, if that helps. Thanks for being one of my favorite podcasts of all the podcasts I listen to, but you guys are forever number one. <laughs> Very sweet. Gosh, yeah. I just, my heart goes out to that midwife for sure. Thanks, I don't necessarily have any resources for her. Do you? No, I did say, I did tell her, tell her that I, I wrote her back. Thanks for sharing. Tales of sham peer review and harassment of midwives are all too common. I do not know anyone in that area. A good resource might be our friend Hermine Hayes Klein. I gave her her yeah. email. Yeah. I said, your midwife and all midwives listening absolutely need representation. Should not communicate with the hospital or the state board directly. Please let her know that if she if she doesn't already know that, this sort of thing just burns my butt. <laughs> I would love to support her in every way I can, right? Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. Our prayers go out to her for, I mean, what a great attitude, right? Like this midwife is being investigated and she says she's so glad that she joins the ranks of the midwives who have to fight for the rights of women. I mean, that's beautiful. It's a beautiful perspective. It is. And it probably comes from the fact that she's older and more established because I can see this being career ending or career devastating to a young, a young midwife who runs up against a hospital administration like that. Yeah. And and we all know stories of people who do that. And it's very, very, totally. yeah. A lot of people don't have a support system for something like that or the finances. Right. To get themselves through that. Yeah. Yeah. These are, these are times where, you know, if, if midwives wanted to send up, set up some give, send goes for these sorts of things and just promote that on their websites or, you know, in the, in the grapevine, I think that we have generous hearts in our community. And I think people would support give, send, go even by sending 20 bucks. Yeah, people to do that. That's going to help pay at least a few hours of legal fees for that for that midwife. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, so here's a good one that you'll that that right up your alley. It's like, how do you pick a birth assistant? Okay. Mm-hmm. So it goes like that. It says, "Good evening, Doctor Stu and Bliss. Just Bliss. <laughs> <laughs> Today you're just Bliss again. All right. My name is Sarah, and I'm a private practicing midwife in South Africa." I've been following your podcast for a couple of months now after I watched the trial with Angie Hawk. I am so grateful I came across your podcast, and I so wish there were more doctors and midwives like you in South Africa. South Africa is the shits when it comes to the hierarchy and the C-section rate and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Morbidity, mortality. I feel like what you talk about resonates with my soul in midwifery, but it's so difficult in the climate of birth that we navigate here in South Africa. Sometimes I wish I could just come and spend some time with you guys and witness firsthand how you guys work. So thank you for all the great topics you cover and the confidence you give me to continue to work with, with women and to trust birth. In one of the podcasts of yours that I listened to, you were talking about what you both charge for births, and Bliss mentioned that includes your assistant fee. I wanted to know what sort of assistant either of you takes to your home birth. Here in South Africa, I struggle to take another midwife as I feel very few are truly trusting and patient with birth. And so I've done some emergency training with a doula that I work well with, and she, then she comes with me. So just interested to know, do you take another midwife or how does it work over there? Would love to hear from you. And thanks again so much for talking openly about birth. Oh, I'm so excited that Breaches Without Borders is coming here and I've signed up for their course in Johannesburg. Maybe one day I'll be able to meet or chat with you guys. That's from Sarah. So Bliss. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's very much, very wide range of answers here. What would you suggest for Sarah? Well, it's so interesting because in Los Angeles, I had so many options of, because there's just a lot more birth workers there. And I was very selective and partially, definitely people who trusted birth, but I also brought people who came from a spiritual slant because that's something that's really important to me. And then when I got here in Santa Barbara, my options were really limited in terms of who I could bring because there just aren't a lot of midwives and the midwives that do work here are already busy with their own clients. So um, I think whoever you trust to be there with you here in, in California, there's no requirement in terms of like having to bring a licensed midwife. So if you have someone who is trained to be able to assist you, and you feel comfortable with them at your side, I think that that's the most important thing. But, you know, sometimes you're limited. And I don't feel comfortable going to a birth by myself, just in case, you know, we do have something with both mom and baby at the same time. I I really 
I know that most of the time I don't really need that additional set of hands, but it's nice to have and also a different perspective. You know, just sometimes it's nice to turn to the person who's assisting you and just be like, what do you think about this? Like, how would you handle this? Just to just to think outside of the box again a little bit more. So that's how I do it. Yeah, and I would agree. I'm not comfortable, partly because I'm male. It's a different story and I'm a physician. So I always go with a midwife. But I know of a couple midwives here in SoCal that that go by themselves and do all the all the work by themselves. Yeah. Um, that would that's they're comfortable with that. I can see there's there's nothing illegal about doing that. I just think it's always smarter sometimes to have two trained sets of people because at some point you could have a mother who's bleeding, father who falls down, hits his head because he faints, <laughs> and a baby that needs respiratory assistance all at the same time. So right. nice to have somebody, even if it's just to chart and to make phone calls or do whatever you need to do while you're busy doing your thing. Some states or countries may have rules about who can actually do medical stuff. So if your assistant is only coming to help set up to, you know, help uh, clean up to chart, that's great. If you need somebody who might end up having to do NRP or CPR or take a blood pressure or do something, you got to make sure that that's with under the jurisdiction of your state or you're in. Even though I hate the idea that I just said that, I don't want to see anybody else get harassed for trying to do the right thing. So you just have to follow those rules. But yeah, like Bliss said, having somebody who you trust, and if it's okay that they're not a licensed medical personnel, that's fine. That's fine. They don't even have to be a medical assistant if they're if they're qualified and good at it. I mean, how many times have sisters or mothers assisted, you know, with no training, assisted at the birth of their their their, their niece or their grand or their or their grandchild, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. That's what I think. Great. Okay. All right. So what we're going to do right now is take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk about our topic, which is molar pregnancy and all kinds of other stuff. Hey, great. Hey, Bliss, guess what time it is? It's time to talk about our sponsors. Yeah, we're going to talk about Needed. And you know, that's a product that I've been using, and I think you probably have too. Yeah, I love it. uh, Yeah. So tell me why. Well, you know, we're very selective about who we partner with. And Needed is an amazing company that's women-owned and really has done the work to bring really quality products to the market. One of them is Julie Sawaya, who was a client of mine. She has two home births. And we did do an episode on her. So you guys can go back and check her out because it's really amazing they've done. And I love the products because of that. And also, I, I really love supporting a company that has a supplement that is helpful for women who have nausea. So they have their prenatal vitamins in a powder form and also in another form that's called, they call essentials, which is just the basics. So that if a woman is having nausea, which happens quite frequently, they can still take their prenatal vitamins. So. Yeah. Julian Ryan, they hand selected every ingredient and nutrient dose, and they spend thousands of hours reviewing supplier sourcing records, clinical literature, to come up with the best possible combination of substances in their products, which which include things like their prenatal vitamin, which you just mentioned, which comes in that powdered form, which you love. And they have a pre and probiotic. They have a collagen supplement. They have a stress support, sleep and relaxation support, hydration support. They have choline and CoQ10. And they also have a men's health plan as well. So get your husbands mm-hmm. online. Go check them out. You go to thisisneeded.com and use the code word birthinginstincts. 
When you do that, you'll save 20% off your one-time order. So that's thisisneeded.com, code word birthing instincts for 20% off your one-time order. Thanks, Needed. Thank you. We're back. We're back. Please support our sponsors. Thank you, guys. Okay, so our topic today is... Molar pregnancies and other interesting, unique pregnancies. Yeah, under the under the yeah, the unique ones are really rare, as there's molar pregnancy, but molar pregnancy falls under the subcategory of gestational trophoblastic disease. So, you know, I did a little bit of a dive for that, but we did it based on a letter that we got from one of our listeners. Who, she's an Instagram fellow traveler, and her name is Sylvia. And she wrote, hi, Dr. Stu, I'm inquiring if there is any information on your podcast about pregnancy complications, specifically discussion on molar pregnancies. Well, the answer to that is there is now. (laughs) For inspiring it. (laughs) I've read a lot of information, some reassuring, some scary. I was diagnosed at 11 weeks via ultrasound, confirmed by pathology that I had a complete mole. And I'll explain the difference between complete mole and incomplete mole. My HCG level is coming down from 600,000 to 1,200 recently after I had a DNC. I'm going to continue to monitor weekly until my level is zero. I'm seeing a midwife at a new practice, and OB performed the DNC. Everyone has been compassionate. That's nice to hear. Mm-hmm. You and Bliss are holistic and empower... Well, Bliss is holistic. <laughs> I'm learning. And empower women with knowledge, and I trust the information you share on your podcasts. Thank you. What Thank I'm you. looking for is more information on how long to wait to try again, chances of another, of another molar pregnancy, why do they want my placenta after the next birth, will I be able to birth at home if we're meant to get pregnant again? Great question. all, right. Yeah, yeah. So how do you want to start? Tell us what causes a, what is a molar pregnancy and, and are, is there something that causes it? And then we can go into her question. Okay. Well, I'm going to just go to some basic information here. I got off the internet off from the Cleveland clinic and gestational trophoblastic disease are tumors that start in your uterus and are related to pregnancy. So they are tumors. Some are benign, some are malignant. Sorry. Mm -hmm. I said, not actually a baby. I mean, in a partial there is, but it's not a pregnancy won't sustain itself. Yeah. And in a partial mole, the, pre- the baby will not develop either. Okay. And that's why I can get out. I can go off track here. A molar pregnancy is when a sperm fertilizes an egg that has no chromosomes in it. Right. So the developing trophoblastic tissue only has 23 chromosomes. Clearly mm-hmm. they can't make a human being. And what it does is it makes this trophoblastic tissue that continues to multiply. It makes the hormone that makes you feel pregnant. So for every you know, in every sense, you feel pregnant initially, you might even feel really pregnant, because the levels might get very high, in which case you'll have lots of tenderness, lots of nausea. But generally, that will happen is initially, you'll begin to start spotting. And that will be the first sign that something isn't right. But let's get into it. So they usually occur early in pregnancy, they're called molar pregnancies. Despite being called pregnancies, these cells don't develop into a fetus that will develop into a baby, typically non-cancerous or what we would call benign. The actual term for molar pregnancy is hytidiform mole, and they're the most common type of gestational trophoblastic trophoblastic disease, or GTD. From now on, I'll just say GTD, and commonly called molar pregnancy. As I said, you may feel pregnant and get a positive pregnancy test, but when you go in for your first ultrasound, they're not going to find anything there. Um, What they're going to find, they're not going to find a fetus there, they're not going to find a gestational sac, they're going to find a uterus that's filled with this snowy cystic 
stuff that often looks is always often called like grapes, like looks like a bunch of grapes. And moles come in two forms. They come in complete or partial moles. Most molar pregnancies are not cancer. And the common symptom is vaginal bleeding early in pregnancy and sometimes abdominal pain. Then there's something called persistent invasive. Well, let's talk about, we'll come back to those, okay? Gestational trophoblastic disease occurs in about one in every thousand pregnancies. So it's very small. It is increased in Asian women. So it's slightly higher in the Pacific Rim countries. Mm -hmm. um, more serious cases like choriocarcinoma, which is a form, malignant form of gestational trophoblastic disease, is less than one in 20,000 pregnancies. So that I, actually turns into cancerous cells. Yeah, that, that can metastasize and spread. Fortunately, that too is quite responsive to therapy. Yeah. So it's very, very rare for anyone to ever die from this problem. And we don't know why sometimes it becomes cancerous. Nope, we don't know why, and there's nothing you can do to predict or prevent. Okay. So it's something that nobody should be worried about until they have one, and then they should educate themselves about what they can do and how to follow it and what's what's good, which is what we're going to get into a little bit today. Most people with early GTD have no symptoms at all. They just feel pregnant, okay? But then they can have irregular vaginal bleeding, or they could have a uterus that feels larger than it's supposed to mm -hmm. on, when I talk about those early vaginal exams. Sometimes pain in your abdominal area, sometimes nausea or throwing up. Occasionally, you'll have high blood pressure. I'm not sure exactly why that happens, but it might be the way the HCG, these astronomically high levels are affecting other parts of your body. It's really, What's very interesting is sometimes it acts like your hyperthyroid. And the reason it acts like your hyperthyroid is because the HCG molecule is made up of two parts. If I remember correctly, there's an alpha and a beta fragment. TSH, which is your thyroid stimulating hormone, has the very similar beta fragment. So they're very similar. So HCG can act like TSH and trigger your thyroid to go nuts. Mm -hmm. Maybe the cause of the high blood pressure, the swelling, the nausea, that sort of thing, more so than anything else. That makes sense? Yeah, I was just thinking about preeclampsia and how preeclampsia also affects blood pressure and has to do with abnormal. They think they've never really been able to figure it out, but has something to do with the placenta and the abnormal cells. So I wonder if it's some kind of similar response in your yeah, body. Yeah, I think they've looked into HCG levels in those such in scenarios and they haven't found a correlation, but yeah, clearly there's something going on. Yeah. Okay. Um, so in a molar pregnancy, what really happens is that fertilization doesn't happen correctly. It's just, it's a boo, boops. And what happens in the molar pregnancy, as I said, is a sperm will fertilize an egg that doesn't have any chromosomes in it. Yeah. And in a partial mole, you'll have egg that gets fertilized by two sperm at the same time. So you end up with 69 chromosomes instead of 46. And that obviously cannot develop into a, a live baby. And so what you might see on ultrasound is you might see a gestational sac with a fetal pole that may even have a little heartbeat for a while, but can't possibly survive. And therefore, it's going to, but the rest of the inside of the uterus doesn't look normal at all because it's got this grape-like appearance. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's see. Ultrasound is the, you know, the number one way to diagnose the thing, blood and laboratory values as well, usually just HCG levels. And HCG levels are very important in this disease because once it's found and treated, they need to be followed very, very closely all the way down to zero because you don't want to end up with something called a persistent. So the HCG levels are normally quite considerably higher than 
they would be in a normal pregnancy too? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. They can, you can even see them up to a million. Okay. In a normal pregnancy, they, you know, they might be 80,000, 100,000, 150,000 in twins, sometimes even a little bit higher, but you'll never see the, the kind of numbers that you see with gestational trophoblastic disease. And this is always DNC, right? You don't uh, ask naturally. If it's, if, yeah, if they can see it in the uterus, first, the best thing to do is to remove the, the, the tumor mass as much as possible. Mm-hmm. generally they're not invasive and you can just do a DNC and essentially suck it all out. Mm-hmm. And then you'll have to follow the levels down to zero. Sometimes there's an invasive mole where it invades the myometrium and that may require further treatment more in depth. It may require not just following levels, but you may actually have to do chemotherapy. And if you get beyond that and severe, then sometimes it's even radiation therapy. And in rare cases, very, very rare cases, and I'm hate saying the word, but sometimes it leads to hysterectomy. But we're yeah. talking, we're not talking about normal. I've seen molar pregnancies yeah. maybe five times. Yeah, I've never in my seen earlier one. days. And every one of them mm-hmm. did fine. Every single yeah. one of them did fine. Okay. And so she was asking about intervals for pregnancy, um, risk of re, you know, increased risk with a subsequent mole. And then this is curious to me too. Why do they want her placenta? Okay, I did a little, I did a little looking into that, but let, oh, we'll do with that one first. Um I couldn't understand it. it. Didn't make sense to me. Yeah. You don't have it. Yeah. But then I but then I said, then I looked at one article or something that said something about they would look at the to make sure there's none no evidence of it in the placenta. But I would have to tell you that my experience with placental pathology is like I'm not sure they look very carefully at those sorts of things. So maybe if it's labeled properly, they might look. But I would tell you that if you follow the right protocols and got down to zero and were zero for like several months, and then got pregnant again and had a normal pregnancy, that there's absolutely no reason you need to send your placenta to pathology. I do think that that's one of those over-medicalized calls that they make. Um, I'm sure that the pathologist or an oncologist would disagree with me, but it doesn't make a lot of sense. So maybe you can give them a piece of your, you could take a piece of your placenta and give it to them. Mm -hmm. Take the rest of it for yourself. Yeah. And then what I read, Stu, was that they they suggest more than a year interval, but you're not you're saying that that you don't think that that's necessary. Well, I its article suggests from the Cleveland Clinic and from the um, I also checked the um, Mayo Clinic. Uh, they suggest three months with negative um, pregnancy tests, but okay. I've always I've always heard longer too. I've always heard yeah. six months. Yeah. So and the reason that they do that is because there is such such a thing as invasive or persistent invasive molar pregnancy, and that's where you have a mole, you have a DNC, levels begin to fall, and then they plateau. And then they may begin to rise again because you've either got metastatic disease or you've got disease in the uterine wall. And that needs to be aggressively treated because eventually that could lead to a significant problem. Yeah. And you don't want that to interfere with another pregnancy. Because that's not a benign process. If it spreads to other organs by sort of definition, it's not necessarily benign. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so you want to do that. And then there's and then there's actually something called placental site trophoblastic tumor. And again, these are th- sort of things that happen after your baby's been delivered, that there's persistent. So women that have had that, it might be reasonable after they give birth in a subsequent pregnancy to be sure that their hormone levels fall to zero after that as well. Okay, great. The recurrence rate is small, okay? It can it can recur and there's no but there's no way to prevent it and there's no way to predict it. All right. 
the risk factors are that you've had a previous molar pregnancy or someone in your family history mm-hmm. as as it is in the asian culture where you see that and then the question of course can you have a baby afterwards yes of course you can and a home birth and there's no reason that you can't have a home birth that was i think that was her last question right yeah yeah right, right. so yes of course you can have you can have a home birth because this isn't this isn't a problem once it's not a problem anymore yeah um it's like you know it's like if you break your arm can you play the violin once it's healed? Yes. Yes. Only if you can play the violin before you broke your arm. That's an old, it's an old joke. Anyway. <laughs> You've Good never one. heard that joke? You never heard that joke? I don't think so. The little kid asked the orthopedist, he says, when I get the cast off, can I play the violin? And the doctor says, of course you can. And he says, oh, that's great. Cause I couldn't play it before. That <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, and this is just kind of a silly thing. Whenever I hear mole instead of molar like molar pregnancy i get it and then you say something about getting rid of the mole i always imagine the animal oh you're kidding i imagine the little guy with a mole on austin powers on his no face. i always imagine that actually you're pregnant with an actual mole and they have to get rid of it so i don't know that's just silly me i think they should use a different term but whatever. Yeah, i have no idea whether i have no idea why the term is called molar yeah molar i don't know either but Anyways, because molar, when you think of molar, what do you think of? Yeah, your teeth. Your teeth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. But it's not, there's nothing to do with that either. No. <laughs> yep. So, you know, the lexicon and the origin of language is always very interesting. So, someone wants to look <laughs> that up for us, that would be great. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, so, you, re- you wanted to talk about some really remarkable article that you saw. Well, I thought it was so interesting that we were talking about molar pregnancies. And then I saw this woman and and you were dubious when I told you about it but it's it's very rare and there's only 14 cases of this that have been documented around the world and it's called a super fetation right yes and basically this woman Rebecca Roberts who's from England you can go on her YouTube channel i think she calls them super twins and she describes in detail her experience of having twins that were that have three week different gestation and so she was given ivf drugs to increase her her ovulation and so she got pregnant did a couple early ultrasounds one baby went in for a follow-up ultrasound and they found two babies that were measuring three weeks apart and so you your question was how did they know that it was different gestation right yeah, my question is because because of one of our clients, very famous client of ours, who yeah. has significant size difference in the fetuses, even at eight weeks, but they were, she'd always had two sacs, so it wasn't, is that how do they know that one wasn't just severely growth retarded and they just, on the first ultrasound, they just missed it. Yeah. But you said they figured that out, right? Yeah, I mean, our client was was implanted with embryos though, right? And so that one we knew when when they were implanted and we knew that that from the beginning oh, right. babies yep. were growing differently yep. this woman was fertilized by her husband right and so and so when they measured the babies the baby continued to be 3 weeks behind and they know you know obviously there's twin to twin transfusion that can happen which was the original thought was like oh this baby's not there's something yeah. wrong with the second baby but they're a girl and a boy and they didn't share a placenta. So as far as I know, they have to share a placenta 
And yeah, they have to be mono. They have to be mono die twins, right. which means they have to be the same sex. They can't be right. a girl and a boy. Right, and that's and that's not the case. So anyway, very interesting, very unique. Doesn't happen often, uh, and but it can kind of freak you out to think that you could get pregnant when you're already pregnant. Do we know how far pregnant she got, and did she deliver vaginally, or did she have a C-section? She had a cesarean. Shocking. She, yeah, she was. Well, one baby was 30 weeks and the other was 33 weeks. But oh. yes, she delivered. And they were, um, I didn't go into the story. She talks about it, you know, why her pregnancy t- continued to be, you know, scary and challenging and all of that. But uh, one of the babies was in the NICU for a while, a long time. So. Do we know why they came early? Because the picture I'm looking at shows her holding two babies. This was obviously taken months later. Yeah, when... They came home from NICU, I think. Yeah, I didn't realize that. So do we know why she... I I didn't go further into the story as to why they were born early. But so, yeah, pretty interesting. Well, I I don't think anyone listening right now has to really worry about this. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry about it. It's just interesting. (laughs) We don't want to give other people things to to clutter. One more thing to worry about. (laughs) Yeah, one more thing to worry about. Oh, no. All right, better. we better not have... Once we get pregnant, we can't have sex now for at least two months so we don't get superfetations of twins. Well... The other thing that I thought was interesting about her story was that she was 38 and she, she didn't go into why, but she was having a hard time getting pregnant. And so she started to do all this IVF stuff. And then after you mean, you mean the twins, meds, you mean the meds she was taking? Yeah. Cause you said she had, she got pregnant with sex, right? She did. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. Um, well, that's, that in, after, vitro, in vitro means like they got pregnant in the, in the tube or the Petri yes. dish, right? She didn't, she didn't do that. Yeah. Okay. So after she had these twins, just after that pregnancy, she got pregnant without any help at all. So surprise, surprise, right? Don't you hear those stories all the time? All the time. All the time. <laughs> yeah. 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 I have people that try IVF three or four times and give up. They go off to Bermuda for a week and then they come home pregnant. I've heard that. Exactly. Now, again, they're just exactly. anecdotes, but sometimes that's the way the brain works is just stop worrying about stuff and good things, good things will come. Totally. Did you want okay. to, did you, are we out of time? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're going to save the ectopic for Yeah, another. I got a whole thing on ectopic pregnancy, too, that we'll do that another time. We'll do that another time. All right. Well, this was a nice rambling uh, podcast where we went off on many, many different tangents. Yeah. From Bill, and from I feel Bill better Gates than... To, from Bill Gates to superfetation. Exactly. <laughs> thanks for the laugh. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I hope we made our listeners laugh as well. And I hope that People all there out there are enjoying their lives and taking some time for themselves, like Liz did, and and readjusting and and relishing in the fact that the model of care that we're practicing is 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 good and that we are doing good even in our small corner of the world. And it's yeah. spreading. Again, never fast enough for me, but it is spreading. The word is spreading. There's good things going on all over the country. There's a big twin thing going on this month with my friend Sarah Hawkins in in England. We've got Meredith and Alicia putting out interview with 12 sort of rogue doctors. I mean, I, I wish I wouldn't call us rogue, but that's sort of what we are when we're, the, when we're such a minority. And that will be something worth listening to. Israel is doing something that I got involved in where I got, I'm going to get to speak remotely on Zoom to, to some Israeli doctors. And, and, so, and then um, uh, we got this big thing going on in Kentucky in August with a bunch of breach people going to meet with Nathan Riley's group of, of people over there. And so lots and lots and lots of good stuff happening. And I hope that this kind of stuff continues. It's really a joy. I'll be, like I said, I'm going to be in Ireland in October and I'm going to be in Australia in November. So that's 
great. Look at you, you little globe trotter. Yeah, you could trot with me. You could. I wish. You could. Well, we'll talk about it. <laughs> I All actually right. have to make money somehow. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great to do a podcast out in the outback in front of Ayers Rock? Just you and me. Uh, yeah. 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 All right, darling. We'll see you next week. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 